Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Current Yield, uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. And I am Jim Grant, and with me, as, uh, as usual, is Eric Whitehead at the control panel and uh, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. Evan is uh, remote, not intellectually or uh, spiritually, but just physically. By the way, Evan, do you share my annoyance with this term social distancing? God, it bugs me. I hate redundancies, especially when they are sanctified in conventional speech by the authorities. Social distancing. How about just distancing? How about just one word? No? All right, we'll peeve. So we are, we are back from vacation, and, and I have a feeling that, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be surprised when you hear where we went. Now, Evan, I think, Evan, you did not go far, correct? No, I, I stayed within scenic Brooklyn. Okay, and I, for my part, uh, with the family, we went to uh, Bethany Beach, Delaware. We saw the children, the grandchildren, and uh, spouses, all manner of people. They said cast of thousands. And uh, then Patricia and I spent much of that uh, time in, also in uh, upstate New York, where we have a, a house. And it leaves Eric. And Eric, as you know, is our adventure traveler. And wouldn't you know, I thought he was going to Portland there, Evan, but uh, you know where he went instead? He couldn't get tickets to Portland. You know where he went? He went to Beirut with a whole family. In-laws, um, nephews, nieces. I mean, it must have been quite a caravan, no, Eric? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think it was probably worth it, though, right? We had a great time, yes. All right, so um, we are back today, and uh, I don't know, Evan, it was such a strange time when we were gone. I, here we have the, uh, the issue of Grand State of the last week, and we say here that between August 5th and 28th, uh, the gross debt of the United States rose by $132.6 That was during our vacation. But for perspective, we say the two-day accretion in the equity market cap of Apple Inc. following the July 3rd announcement of the iPhone maker's four-for-one stock split totaled $214.8 billion. So there's your fundamentals in action. But um, you know, to, to clarify the whole notion of fundamental analysis of value investing, we have with us today one of the, I would say, the most imaginative and uh, thoughtful of members of the value tribe. And he is uh, Andrew McDermott. And Andrew is a principal of uh, Mission Value uh, Partners, LLC, out in Sonoma, California. And he's a, John Buford is with him side by side. Jazz is John Buford's idea of a good time. And buying low and selling high is Andrew's. Not to, not to say that uh, John doesn't mind buying low and selling high, but I, th I think if you were with us, Andrew, he might uh, spend a few minutes telling us in somewhat rhapsodic terms about the fabulous voice and affect of um, Veronica Swift, no? Apologize. Well, first of all, thank you. And uh, it's just me today. I tried. I was a late. I tried to make a late edition without uh, and violated several principles of decorum by promising without checking schedules. So it's it's just me. Well, that's okay. We're glad to have you. Glad to have you. My knowledge of. I suppose I could say that knowledge of value investing exceeds my knowledge of jazz. Excellent. Okay. That's, so. <laughs> that's, that is a good start to this broadcast. Now, um, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to begin with uh, Andrew. Um, was with uh, Southeast Asset Managed, a most eminent value shop for what, like 10 years or more? And with uh, About that. Yeah. From 1998 to 2009. And John and you got uh, Mission Value Partners going, what, about 10, 11 years ago, right? And today you have under your wing about a billion dollars and uh, comprises through financial personages in the audience about 30 positions. 30 names, equal weight or so, 5%, with some overlap in names. So a relatively concentrated position, set, set of positions, and principally investing in Japan, not because you are necessarily Japanophiles, but because you are on the lookout for 
terrific businesses under the radar screen with which you are personally comfortable and with which you can generate a return for your investors and not lose their money. But I want, I want to begin by, um, I've been talking too much, not letting Andrew talk, but I'm going to begin, Andrew, by quoting something you told us at Grants and I've been thinking about ever since I heard it over the phone. And here it is. Quote, this is Andrew McDermott on the phone with us now. I'll tell you what value investing is not. It is not buying the cheapest third of the market. It is not buying sectors that are out of favor. It is not buying low PEs. All those, all those things may well end up being characteristics of value portfolios. But the people that I respect uh, that have been most effective have been guys like Nomad Investments. These are ex-marathon guys, or Buffett himself. Uh, Benjamin Graham, uh, he didn't know Benjamin, I think. Uh, Andrew didn't. But anyway, all these people that he had mentioned did not let value investing define them. They defined it themselves. So Andrew McDermott, tell us uh, what value investing is. Well, first of all, that quote is extremely uh, well-crafted, and I can't take full credit for it, particularly that last piece, which I think you, Wordsmith, specifically about Ben Graham and the idea that Ben Graham defined value investing but didn't let it define him. And that's something that you wrote that, that stuck with me ever since our conversation, which has been really, was, 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 has, was, continues to be thought-provoking. I, I didn't really get into, I didn't know what value investing was when I started. I'm still not sure that I know, but certainly um, when I look at Graham, for example, and I look at the way value investing is defined, uh, and I think value investors are, are people of the book, and, and we have these books that, that Graham wrote, and everyone has to read them. There's the you know Security Analysis, right. fourth edition. Right. On my desk here, there's uh, Intelligent Investor, there are Buffett's Letters. And, and I think that where we sometimes, and I, I'm using we here very tentatively, but, but I would say people who identify with value investing and they talk about it, um, where I think sometimes we get off track is, is realizing that you know, the, the folks who are our heroes who are writing the books, they didn't have a book at the time. They were living it, and, and they continued to evolve. And I shared with you before our call a couple of things that Graham wrote and that I discovered five years ago when I was – every five years at Mission Value, we try to convince ourselves that we should stay in business and that we should not just close up shop and give our investors back all their money and go do something else. And, and so we're at one of those five-year points now, and a big part of that conversation with ourselves is what are, what are we doing? I mean, can we – can we still honestly say that we're acting in consistently with the principles that we have adopted and or or that we're not just making things up because one of the hooks that value investing kind of can use on people is to say hey well just you know if you if you give up now you're wimping out you know just look at what the book says these things turn back around in favor of these individuals concentrated portfolios or or, or how whatever they may be and uh, if you look at Ben Graham and you look at Buffett, the, the prophets who wrote these books, they at various times have completely disavowed the things that have been in, really taken as received gospel. You know, the, the conversation with Ben Graham, um, <laughs> this is mind-boggling for me to read this after having really been a disciple of security analysis, but they, you know, they in 1976, they asked him in the Financial Analyst Journal, selecting a common stock portfolio, do you advise careful study and selectivity among different issues? And Graham's answer is, in general, no. I'm no longer an advocate of elaborate techniques of security analysis in order to find superior value opportunities. But then he goes on, and so this is, I'll, I'll try to 
come to the end of the question. He goes on to describe what he does do, and I, and I do think that there is something that we can take from these books to guide us as we move off the book. And you know, this idea that you have to you have to think for yourself, and you have to have a consistent means of understanding your own, I guess, risk tolerance is the best word I can think of, but it's, it's not really just that. It's your, your, you have to be comfortable with the investments that you make. You have to be comfortable with the risks that you're taking, and you have to be willing to admit that you're wrong. And those three things are consistent, really, with, with success, I think, in any business endeavor. They've, they've been true throughout time. They kind of manifested themselves in these different metrics. You could maybe use these metrics to guide you to some of those ideas. But I think as Graham and, and Buffett and so many people who were participants in, I would say, the golden age of, of value investing and the period I was lucky enough to, to kind of fall into it, have found those techniques uh, don't work when a lot of – it's kind of the old Yogi Bear thing. You know, the, the, when they become so popular – that nobody goes there anymore. I mean, there's just been an explosion of, of disciples. There are programs at every many colleges of value investing, and there are just too many people kind of following what's in the book. And even, and I don't, Andrew, let me interrupt. Even today, I mean, value investing has been such a, a guaranteed, uh, it's like in baseball, it's an automatic out, right? Value investing has kind of been automatic out certainly in relative terms and uh, in many years in absolute terms for more than a decade, two decades? I mean, is it, is it really overcrowded? I mean, by value investing, I mean the classic first edition, 1934 security analysis when you're looking for a margin of safety and uh, you're looking for the criteria that uh, we enumerated, I mentioned before. That particular approach has been utterly discredited, no, by results. How can it possibly be overcrowded? Well, one of the lines I circled in your most recent issue was this quote from... Um the former value tribe that says valuation as a thinking tool has prevented participation in 98% of the best lockout. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and I thought, that guy, he's, he's on to something. Right. Well, hold, wait a second. Let us invite Evan Lorenz in here. Evan, in what context was that quote uttered? That quote was uttered in context of a uh, high-flying software stock that was trading at 20 times sales and uh, a market which rewards high-flying software stocks even when their sales slow down. Right. Um, uh, sorry? Uh, Andrew, maybe to answer this a little bit differently, in the last decade, we've all, whether meant to or not, have picked up the language of private equity and growth investors. We talk about TAM, total addressable market. We value companies on EBITDA multiples. We look at things like customer acquisition cost and lifetime value of customer, uh, LTV. We've kind of consciously or unconsciously absorbed growth investing as kind of like, you know, the rubric of against which everything else was mentioned. How do you stick to something that come to independently, that hues to some form of value, and don't get swept away and kind of be whole praise towards growth and, and uh, leverage buyouts? Well, I, you know, I would suppose a, a snide remark would be we're committed to underperform the market in all... <laughs> In all, in all situations, that's not really true. You know, I, I would say that we, for us, it's been very easy because we have a demonstrated history of kind of tuning the market out, for better or worse. That was one of the genius decisions the founders of our old firm to be in a place like Memphis, Tennessee, and not really have these conversations. And um, kind of in our own careers, we we just walked away when we didn't when it didn't make sense to us. Now, I do want to come back to this crowding because it does seem unusual because I, I hear a lot of aggrieved former or people I've, I've known in the industry say, hey, you know, 
we're fighting this rear guard action, and it's going to come around back to value simply because we're so out of favor. And and I take the point that the performance suggests that it's out of favor. But when I just I'm looking at this from the perspective of a of a foot soldier who kind of came into the industry in 1998 from you know working in a technology investment banking firm in San Francisco and knowing nothing about value, and then seeing how it was truly out of favor in 2000, and people were telling us that we were crazy, and there weren't that many people. Today, in spite of the lack of um, performance for some cases 15, 20 years, certainly the last decade, the number of actual practitioners, people who call themselves value investors, has exploded. There's a firm in New York called FPIA that does nothing but place buy-side value investors amongst specialized headhunting firms. They're you know, for $4,000, you too can get a Columbia uh, Value Investing uh, Executive Certificate. We've interviewed lots and lots and lots of people who call themselves value investors. Uh, when I got my job, I was the exhaustion choice. Nobody wanted to be called an investor. I wasn't even a value investor. Uh, today, I would never get a job. So it's it's a strange situation where you're right. There's been this underperformance in the market, and there's been this enormous amount of this change in the nomenclature. And yet, when you scratch the surface of, of um, a lot of so-called value names, you'll find just lots and lots of people. And, you've, you, and this has all happened in the context, as you said, of private equity of taking so many names out of play. Uh, so I, I find that it's very crowded, even though it hasn't really performed very well, you know, at least and, relative to what yeah. the past. You know, Andrew, speaking of crowded, crowded is exactly what the uh, fall grants conference won't be. Right? We have uh, <laughs> It was great news today. I'm, we're coming to you on uh, what is it, Eric? It's uh, it's Wednesday, right? It's Wednesday, September September 9th, right? September 9th. So on October 20th, we're having the uh, I think like the 174th annual Fall Grants Conference, right? 170. Anyway, we've had a lot of them. And this one will be at the plaza, as is customary. And uh, the plaza holds, uh, I think the ballroom holds about uh, 450-odd people. But um, we, in uh, compliance with the, uh, with the ruler of the state of New York, the, uh, gov- his honor, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, we're going to have like 125 people there, just so nobody you know, catches a cold. And um, so, uh, but the conference is, is on, and the show is going to go on. You know, um, Evan, wouldn't you know it, these uh, uh, people with skim milk in their veins have canceled the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular. That's off. Metropolitan Opera, canceled. New York Philharmonic, dark. So there is one major cultural event in New York this fall. It's a grants conference. Uh, speakers, uh, speakers include uh, uh, Jim Chanos, who uh, sells first and buys later. Uh, John Paulson, the hero of 2007, 8, and 9, and beyond, who is going to talk to us about what he's doing now. Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England. Henry Maxey of the UK, a great value investor. Joe Lawler, who is a short seller of biotech stocks. We'll hear about uh, the vaccine caps T and V. Uh, Dylan Grice, Monica Erickson, Bruce Flatt, and uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is going to tell us about modern monetary theory. So uh, what a day. And as I say, there'll be no competition for this conference. Everybody else in New York is at home, in bed, taking their temperature. Seems a peculiar way to live one's life, but there it is. But the intrepid subscribers to grants can uh, apply for entry into this very elite group. However, as many comers as uh, there might be can get this on the World Wide Web. We have a webinar simultaneously with the in-person event. 
So uh, anyway, that, that concludes our advertising moment of this podcast. So, um, uh, Andrew. Go ahead, Evan. Yeah, Andrew, going back to what you said a second ago, you said you hear a lot of investors complain and a lot of investors still call themselves value investors. Just one week ago, Bloomberg had a headline um, that read, value investing hedge fund gained 73% with uh, growth stocks in vogue. I was curious about that article, and I pulled up the, um, the fund's 13F. I'm not going to name them, but they own such value stocks as Carvana, Slack, Shopify, Zoom, and I can name others, but it's a portfolio like that. It seems like the title value investor is a little bit like the British commander of the British Empire. Yes, it's still handed out, but it's not as if we expect these people to go off and conquer India. Uh, I, uh, having flashbacks from last night, I was reading, reading Jim's book about a death in India and how Mr. Wilson went there to perform his task during um, the life and times of the greatest Victorian. I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this idea of value investing, it's, it's, it's kind of a recent term. And I think I think it's become really a marketing term. Okay. Hey, let's let's get down to cases, though. Enough of this uh, definitional essay. We're gone. Uh, I want to ask Andrew about some extraordinary facts about Japan and see if they're actually true. Because Andrew has attested to them, but no matter how long I consider these things, they still seem implausible. If, if, for example, okay, Andrew, you'll tell us whether this still holds or whether we misunderstood. You, there used to be seventy-five hundred stocks in this country in the U.S. True, right. And there used to be 3,500 Japan. And here is the stunner. Today, there are fewer stocks in the U.S. than there are in Japan. Now, is that true? Well, I, it is broadly true. I think the last numbers I've seen are like, it's very close. Okay. It's like 3,500 right. in Japan and 32 in, in the U.S. Okay. Um, that's that's so, close enough for government work. Okay. So yeah. that's, that is one uh, astonishing, to me at least, if I, now here's another one. In the past 10 years, uh, earnings of the Topix Index, which is a broad index of Japanese equities, on an unadjusted, not earnings per share basis, but you know, kind of simple EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes. This is not flattered by share buybacks, just flat old EBIT. Japan has outgrown the United States. True? True. These things are actually not discussed in polite Wall Street company. They seem too radical and, and too implausible. Here's another one, that uh, Japan is essentially an inward-looking company, a uh, country it ever has, despite Admiral Perry. You know, it's, it just, it's a, a navel-gazing place, and uh, there are no foreigners and no tourists. And uh, so 10 years ago, or when you started doing business in Japan, there's like a million people came a year, nothing. But last year, Andrew McDermott, 25 million tourists came through Japan. Is that true? I would extend the, the time period. I would say that it was when I first went to Japan, which is about 25 years ago, there were fewer than a million tourists. But the government's goal was kind of 20 and 20, and they've, they've surpassed 20 right. million. And, and they have, they, uh, through February, I was, one, I was one, one of the last flights out of Japan. They were, it was exploding. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But broadly, yes. Okay, so Japan is like a happening place, right? It is. To everyone outside of the investment management industry, Japan is probably the hottest ticket in the world right now, whether okay. it's food, entertainment, travel, All right. that sort of thing. So uh, also while we were away, I believe, Evan, I think this happened when we were on vacation, Berkshire Hathaway comes out and announces that uh, they have uh, taken a foothold in the Japanese equity market. They bought a half dozen, I guess, uh, one, two, three, four, five of these old trading companies, which are basically conglomerates. Their names are familiar enough. Mitsubishi, Mitsui, Sumitomo, a couple of others. Um, now, Andrew, I understand that in the interests of propriety and taste that we are not meant to explore too deeply into your portfolio. As wonderful as that portfolio is, 
But do comment, if you would please, on these familiar old legacy Japanese, you know, trading company names and whether they represent to you an opportunity as they seem to represent to Mr. Buffett. Maybe. We have the luxury of managing a billion dollars and we can own a lot of things that um, are smaller. Uh-huh. The characteristics that, that of those companies that have been most interesting to us, because over the last 15 years or so, they've moved from being strictly commodity or energy plays. And when I say their job was to go out and find raw materials, not just energy, but all sorts of things for manufacturers, and, and they've changed. They've morphed into uh, companies that would that are consolidating service industries, that are that are doing things that uh, I guess would be more multi-industry, and they've been delevering to a certain extent. So it's of interest to us, but we don't have to take the sort of balance sheet and management risk in our portfolio that are represented by those companies. However, if I were Berkshire Hathaway, I would be extremely interested in those for the simple reason that there are a lot of ways that Berkshire can participate with them as counterparties. And Berkshire has made no secret of their interest in acquiring entire Japanese companies. This is something we've had discussions with them about and have been in really an interesting position to observe how that's worked. And I think the time is perfect for him to do this. Um, and then there's also the commodity angle that's still there and the currency angle. And all of these are somewhat consistent with getting out of the banks and into gold, as you mentioned in your um, in your latest issue. So we can see the appeal. It's certainly, again, back, back to our conversation on value investing, this is Warren Buffett going, or, or Berkshire Hathaway, rather, going off book. They're not making a concentrated investment in something that is the best manager. On the contrary, they're, they're, it's almost like an insurance underwriting group or yeah. approach where you, you underwrite a group and you say, well, I, I think this is generally good. There's not enough information to tell me which one's better than the other, but there are a lot of good things that can okay. happen. Tell us this. So, you know, what you run is not a Japan fund. It is a, a value fund as uh, wide and big a tent as the word value is and encompasses all sorts of things as we've been discussing. But you're not a Japan investor. You happen to be investing in Japan because your investigations, your analysis has led you there for a certain set of characteristics, corporate characteristics and valuation characteristics. In just a few minutes, would you mind telling us what those characteristics are? What, what is it about Japanese equities that draws you to that, this very, very still out of favor market? Well, it may be to frame that, uh, I'll mention the last non-Japanese stock that we owned, um, which was Apple, which we, we sold a couple of years ago. Um, what? So I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you believe it. Uh, now, and, why just, um, uh, wait, 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 why'd you sell it? Well, we sold it because we felt like all the, when we bought it, it was trading at a single digit earnings, multiple net of significant net cash. Um, and our, the market concerned that it wasn't going to grow anymore. And we didn't care. We felt like, and this is, I think is going to answer the question about our Japanese portfolio as well. We didn't think we were taking any balance sheet risk. And we didn't, we felt like even if it didn't grow, we were going to get high single digit, maybe low double digit real return as if we owned the whole company. There's our cash coupon coming back to us okay. at a 10 times PE that a cash would, would be more than, than what we think we need in exchange for risking our capital. And then we thought maybe some good things could happen. You know, they had the services business that was more important day by day. And, and, uh, and there's nothing really radical 
about our analysis. A lot of people, including Warren Buffett, saw it. Now, when we sold it, we thought, well, gosh, you know, it's gone from single-digit P.E. to nearly 20 times earnings. We've had the, the tax situation, which was the overseas tax ruling was, was in doubt. We assumed that they were going to be fully taxed on the overseas cash holdings. It turned out that they got a much better deal. And their dependence on China was really was, was large enough to concern us um, at that higher multiple. And then we thought it's going to be hard for them to grow their earnings very much from here. And all of those, all of those fundamental analyses have been exactly on point. The only problem is I think the stock's tripled or something. <laughs> we so, so, so you're a, you're a value uh, martyr too. <laughs> I, but but what you know I, I, I guess what back to your point, Evan, and and um, and yours also, Jim. We we are not uh, in Japan just because you know, out, out of stubbornness. We'll we'll go anywhere that we can find these characteristics, and those are I think neatly summarize what we just talked about: a balance sheet that doesn't scare us a business we can understand, and a cash flow stream that if nothing changed, that we don't have to have reversion to the mean. We don't have to have something wonderful happen to give us this high single-digit real return. And we've, we've been able to find that over the last 10 years in lots of places outside of Japan. You know, when, when, when John and I first started talking about this, our collective personal portfolio, I had about 20 Japanese stocks that, that I thought were interesting, and John had about 20 non-Japanese stocks that he had really started assembling in 2008, 2009, after completely leaving the industry in 2005 and going to 100% cash. So we had all sorts of companies. Dr. Pepper is something that we, we owned at one time, and Pepsi, and we, you know, we, we briefly owned Viacom, made a mistake on that one and, and recognized it, but we, we owned Google and Intel at different times. So we've been able to find those types of companies that share these characteristics. Right now, the only place we find those are in Japan. Um, okay, I got one more question for you, Andrew, and, that, and, and Evan's going to weigh on this one, too, because he has uh, done a lot more studying of SoftBank than I do. But, but Japan has, uh, for want of a better and a more original phrase in corporate culture, Japan has uh, somehow uh, produced the characteristics that you so neatly describe, right? But And, and very much unlike the characteristics that one associated with Japan in the bad old days of the, uh, of the bubble years of the late 1980s. But simultaneously, we have this corporate disease vector called SoftBank, which is just, um, it, it's kind of a, what do you think of it? It's, it's, like a, it's like a composite of Japan in 1989, in America in uh, February of 2000, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's somehow, it, is it representative of the Japanese in some way that your companies are not, or is it, is it, or is it just an alien? culture-wise. Well, you know, you're, or, you're, or do you own it? <laughs> I call no, it a, no, a disease no, vector. No. We, oh, we, no, it's your biggest position. No, it's not. Okay. We don't. I don't want to be, uh, gosh, I've been deeply concerned about so many things for so many years. I don't, I don't know if I can be deeply concerned about SoftBank, but, but what, what SoftBank represents, I think, is, is a real threat, not just to Japan, but to kind of the whole world. There's no, they're not like any other company in Japan. That has been a, uh, and to give the devil his due, he, son, has been very clever and he did see some things that other people were not oh, yes. able to see. Yes, certainly in the early years with taking Vodafone business, uh, and at the time we owned both the competitors, um, Docomo and KDDI, and, and we uh, watched and could not believe how he outmaneuvered them, largely with the help of Apple. So all credit to that. But where we are now, you know, he's, he's really the worst of all possible worlds. It's the second act for the guys who brought us 
the Deutsche Bank financial crisis and all of the shenanigans that went on there. You know, Ben, ben Hunt, who was your co-participator in, in the terrific Grant Williams podcast series, has written a terrific piece on this that d- does more than I can to ever describe it. I guess my concern, I, I look at SoftBank and I compare it to, to a company like Hitachi and the hard work that Hitachi has done over the last decade in a really painful restructuring, shared sacrifice by the executives. You know, the CEO of Hitachi makes less than $4 million a year. SoftBank's number two guy after the worst year in really in Japan corporate history paid himself a $15 million bonus. It's just incredible. Just everything that they do is kind of the opposite of the Midas touch. Everything they touch just is, is poisoned, and yet they continue to be rewarded in the stock market, and it's not really rewarded in the Japanese stock market in a strange way. Uh, you know, SoftBank's one of the few Japanese companies that's in the okay-to-own bucket <laughs> for non-Japanese Evan, what was, that, what, was that, what was that quote again from uh, SoftBank as Services uh, Bowl? Read this again to well, us before we sign valuation off. Valuation as a thinking tool has prevented participation in 98% of the best stock outcomes. <laughs> Only once, shame on you. Only twice, shame on me. And we've certainly done that with valuation. <laughs> All right. Andrew McDermott, thank you for being thank here. Thank you, guys. And Evan and Eric, it's been uh, what fun. And uh, the next time that you're on, Andrew, we were going to uh, solve this uh, business about, uh, I don't know, about buying low and selling high. It's still it's a little bit of a mystery to me, but uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, but, well, thank you <laughs> okay. all for, for your terrific work. I, I love reading Grant. It's really nice of you to talk to me. I've never been on a podcast before. don't know really how it works, but look forward to continuing to get to know you guys. Well, you could have fooled us. I've, I've put you down for a podcast uh, veteran. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, thank you for being with us. You're Grant's interest rate observer of the air. Mm-hmm.